So we have come now to our fourth week in our series on the Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. Over the last three weeks, we have looked at the first four chapters of the book, and you may have noticed that there was something in these last four chapters, or there was something that was not in these last four chapters, that you usually expect to see in the Bible. And what that is, is commands. There has not been a single command so far in Ecclesiastes, but all of that is about to change in the fifth chapter. What the teacher has given us so far aren't commands, but they're observations about life, or what you would call wisdom. And yeah, sure, we're supposed to look at this wisdom, and it's supposed to affect the way that we live our lives. It's supposed to affect our choices. But so far, the teacher has not been the direct with us. The teacher hasn't said, thou shalt not do this, or thou shalt do this. Okay? But now that's going to change. Uh, the teacher is about to give us nine statements in what's called the imperative voice. That's the fancy grammatical term for when you give someone a command or a request. So after four chapters of just observations, the teacher's going to get very direct. Do this, don't do this. And you know that he must consider what he's saying super important if he's finding it so important that he's switching from indirect to direct speech, direct commands. So if you have a Bible, open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 1. And let's bow our heads and say a quick prayer together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this beautiful spring morning. And we thank you for the chance to look at scripture together. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would impress on every heart here uh, whatever you want them to hear uh, from these words, Lord. Uh, I pray that you would bring these words to life, and I pray that you would open us up to be able to hear and receive whatever it is you want to tell us. In Jesus' name, amen. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. So I said there were nine imperatives here, right? Nine commands. But if you were expecting something like the Ten Commandments, that's not what this is, because not all of these imperatives are distinct commands. There's a lot of repetition here. And if I were to identify the essence of these nine imperatives, they would sound like this. Be careful. Listen to God. Don't talk carelessly to God. Don't talk carelessly to God. Don't talk carelessly to God. Fulfill your vows. 
Don't lie to God. Don't argue for breaking your vows to God. Fear God. So this sudden burst of imperatives all has to do with the same basic topic, which is our relationship to God and specifically our words with God, how we speak to God. So let's walk through what the teacher says here. First imperative, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps is an idiomatic way of, st- of saying, um, be careful, don't be reckless, right? It's like saying, watch your step if someone is walking near an icy patch and you know there's a chance that they're going to slip and fall. You would say, watch your step, which means don't be reckless, be careful. And what the teacher wants us to realize is that when we go to worship, it's kind of like we are walking into an area that's icy because there's so many ways that we can mess up when we worship God and, 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 and treat worship in a way that actually dishonors him. So the teacher is saying, be careful. Don't slip up. When you go to worship, watch yourself, okay? So how do we do that? How do we be careful, not be reckless? So that that leads us to the second imperative, which is go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Go near to listen. If we want to worship God, we shouldn't start by saying, hey, God, I've got something for you. We should start by saying, I need to hear from you, God. What do you want to tell me? You might have noticed that almost every time I pray for invocation or pray before a sermon, that's what I say pretty much every time. Is Lord, just open us up to be able to receive whatever it is you want to say to us. Um, the posture of coming to God and saying, here, I got something for you, is a posture that's kind of arrogant because it assumes that we have something that God needs, right? But God doesn't need anything from us. What he really wants from us is to have an attitude of saying, I want to hear from you, God. What do you have to say? So what God wants is our undivided attention. When we go to the house of God, we have to give him our undivided attention. And I think this is so important for us to hear because we live in a time where there are forces competing for our attention all the time, right? If we don't actually make an effort to sometimes give our undivided attention to God, we will never give our undivided attention to God. Have you noticed that now, if you watch a video on YouTube, it starts getting ready to play another video before that video is even done, right? It, it has this algorithm where it, it checks all the other things that you've searched for before and it recognizes uh, what people who watch that video that you're watching also like to watch and then it automatically suggests it. And if you don't push any buttons, it will just automatically start playing another video, right? Same with Netflix, you watch an episode, it doesn't like give you an option to push a button, it just starts playing the next episode, right? And there's a reason for that. (laughs) Actually, I've noticed with Netflix, now when you're browsing, you just hover your cursor over something and it automatically starts playing it. It's like, stop, I just, (laughs) I'm looking right now. I'm trying to find something to watch. I don't want you to tell me what to watch, right? Now, why do they do that? They do that, Netflix and YouTube, because they recognize that your attention is something that they have to secure. You have a limited amount of attention and they are doing everything that they can to try and keep it. Because if they have your attention, then they can make money off of you. 
That's the way it works. That's the way Facebook works. That's the way all, all social media works. And there have been a lot of articles that have come out recently by people who worked at these companies where they, they've talked about how they feel like it's unethical that they've designed these things to be addictive. Because if your whole goal is to make money, and the way you make money is by getting people's attention, then if other people are using addictive means to try and get your attention, then in order to compete, they also have to use addictive means, right? And so everybody is in this race to get your attention, keep your attention, and make money off of your attention. So I want us to all say this together. Ready? There is a war for my attention. Good. There is a war for my, intention, my attention. It is so important for us to take this seriously because the quality of our lives is directly related to what we attend to. The quality of our lives is directly related to what we attend to. If we attend to meaningless things, then our lives will be meaningless, right? If we attend to meaningful things, then our lives will be meaningful. And we have to realize there is a spiritual battle that's going on here. Are we going to give all of our attention to the forces that ultimately just care about our money? Or are we going to give our attention to God who cares about us? Now, I don't want to overstate what I'm saying here. Okay? I'm not saying that we should never give our attention to YouTube or Netflix or social media. If I was saying that, I'd be a hypocrite because every day I probably give some of my attention to those kinds of things. But we have to be able to exercise self-control. We have to be able to put limitations on how much these things have our attention. Because if we don't, we will never give God our undivided attention. And then we will slip and fall. So what does that look like, giving our undivided attention to God? Well, if you've been around for a while, there's not going to be any surprises here. It looks like reading scripture, meditating on it. It looks like taking the time to go to a small group or go to a Bible study or come to Alpha. It looks like coming to worship service. And it can look like just taking some time to sit in silence. Right? Do you ever just sit in silence and remind yourself of the presence of God? One way I've heard it put is we should sit and look at God looking at us. If we can spend just a few minutes every day doing that, giving God our undivided attention, look at him looking at us, that has a transformative effect on our souls. There's so much power in that. But we have to be able to eliminate the distractions in order to give God our undivided attention. We have to be able to shut the laptop, you know, turn off our cell phone, turn off the TV, and be still. One way of putting it is giving our attention to God is the sacrifice we should offer before any other kind of sacrifice. You know, I think God has sacrifices that he wants all of us to make. Sacrifices of time and energy and resources in order to help build his kingdom, participate in building his kingdom. But the first sacrifice he wants is our attention, is for us to listen to him. 
Because if we try to give him other sacrifices without having listening, listened, there is a good chance that we will give him sacrifices he never wanted us to give. We'll give the wrong kinds of sacrifices. We've got to listen first. Otherwise, we give the sacrifices of fools, as the teacher says. So next, we have those three imperatives that are basically the same thing, right? Don't talk carelessly to God. Don't talk carelessly to God. Don't talk carelessly to God. The teacher says, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. And then to reinforce the point, he says this kind of weird proverb. He says, as a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. Now, the first part of that proverb is a little hard to understand, but I think the second part is, is clear. The essence of the second part is, wherever there are many words, there is foolish speech. Wherever there are many words, there is foolish speech. No matter how wise we are, if we speak enough, something stupid is gonna come out, right? <laughs> It's a guarantee. So the teacher is saying, when you speak to God, don't just run your mouth. Right? Be careful with your words. Now, when the teacher tells us to let our words be few, I don't think he's telling us not to talk to God very much. I think that's an important uh, clarification to make. If you are the sort of person who speaks to God freely and frequently, then that's probably a good thing. Okay, so don't take this as some kind of corrective. Um, you know, Paul told us to pray without ceasing. So this is not a corrective saying you shouldn't have a dynamic personal relationship with God. But what the teacher is talking about here, when he says, let your words be few, he's talking about a certain kind of speech. And it was the kind of speech that people were doing when they went up to the house of God. Okay, when it talks about the house of God, it's talking about a particular context, which is the uh, temple in Jerusalem in the Old Testament, where they would go to worship. And when people went to the temple, one of the kinds of speech that they would do there is they would make vows. You might have noticed the last part of this is all about making vows, right? And that's because that's the primary kind of speech that the teacher has in mind here, making vows. People would go to the temple and they would, they would make a vow to God. They would say, God, I will give you, you know, this amount of money or I will give you the best animal from my herd or I will you know, give you the best fruit of my harvest. And they would say, God, may I be cursed if I don't actually follow through and give you this. And what they actually meant when they said give you this is give it to the temple. Right? And people would be very careless with these vows. They'd go to the temple and make these extravagant promises to God. Now you might ask, why? Why would they, why would they do that? Why would they be so careless and free with these, these promises? Well, it's not just because they were selfless and wanted to give God all their stuff. It's because they believed that if they offered these things to God, they'd get something in return. So if you came to the temple with an illness, for example, you might say, God, I vow to give you uh, my life savings. I will give my life savings to the treasury. Uh, may I be cursed if I don't? 
please heal me, right? And of course, people make similar promises to God today in less formal ways, right? We say, God, if you just let me get accepted into that grad school program, I will go to church every Sunday when I'm in grad school. You know, God, if you give me a raise, I promise I'll give more money to the poor. God, if you heal me of this cancer, I will, I will, I, I will give up drinking, I will serve you for the rest of my life, right? Now, promises like those and the, and the vows that were made at the temple, they all have something in common. And what they have in common is this. They are all attempts to gain a sense of control, right? They're all based on this idea that we can make a transaction with God, right? That we can say, God, I will give you blank so that you will give me blank. Transaction with God. And these temple vows, they were rooted in a, in a desire to control the things in life that felt uncontrollable. You know, the harvest, your illness, how many children you had. They were rooted in a desire to make what was unpredictable, predictable. But here's the thing. What have we learned in the first four chapters of Ecclesiastes? If we have learned anything it's that life is not controllable or predictable, right? Whether we like it or not, that's the way it is. Remember this verse that we looked at two weeks ago, Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Part of the human condition is that we just don't really understand what's going on. And we can't fully understand what's going on. Two weeks ago, the way I described the teacher's point here is that life is incomprehensible. You know, <laughs> we have this desire for life to make sense. The way I put it before is we have this desire for life to have order, unity, and progress. The same qualities that any good sermon or speech would have. Order, unity, and progress. And we want life to be predictable. We want to feel like if I do X, then I am guaranteed X outcome. Right? If I work hard, then I am guaranteed to be successful. But life just isn't always like that. It's not as simple as I put in X and I get X and that's the way it's going to work. It's not always predictable. Now, I don't, again, I don't want to overstate my case. There are patterns in the way that things work, right? Um, if you want to live a long life, then it's a good idea to exercise and eat healthy. And you're foolish not to if you want to live a long life. But there's exceptions to every pattern. There's exceptions to every rule. You can eat healthy and exercise and still die young. It can happen, right? There is an unpredictable nature to life. We cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And if we can't understand it, that means we can't control it either. Now, remember, that doesn't mean that life is random and pointless, right? The teacher assures us that God is making something beautiful, out of all of this, right? He says he makes everything beautiful in its time. 
And the metaphor that I find helpful here is to think of God as being a weaver who's weaving a tapestry. And all of our lives are like threads in that tapestry. And all of history is this tapestry. And and what this is saying is that God is making something beautiful. He's making this tapestry that if we could see the whole thing, the whole picture, we would be able to say, yeah, that is beautiful, right? And we have this hope, if we have faith, that one day we'll be able to see the whole thing and we'll be able to say, yes, I see the whole tapestry. I see how my thread fits in it and it is beautiful and I praise God for it. But right now, we don't have that perspective, right? Right now, we're not capable of seeing the whole tapestry. And so from our perspective, life is incomprehensible. We don't see how it all fits together. It is unpredictable and to a large extent, it's uncontrollable. And we have a hard time accepting that, right? And so we try to make deals with God. Hey, if I do this, you do this, okay? And when it comes to this kind of talk, the teacher says to us, hey, you got to remember, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. In other words, God is in heaven, but you are, remember the phrase, under the sun. That's what the teacher always says, under the sun, under the sun. God sees the whole tapestry, but you only see a few threads. God knows what he's doing, but you can't comprehend it. So, let your words be few. Don't make these rash promises to God. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what way your thread is going to bend in the tapestry. You don't know all of God's plans. So let your vows be few. Don't talk carelessly to God. The next three imperatives all have to do with keeping the vows that we make. Fulfill your vows to God. Don't lie to God. And don't argue for breaking your vows to God. So, remember the teacher says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Now, I want to be really careful here in applying these verses to our modern context. I don't want to just say, all right, if you ever made a promise to God, even if you were 12 years old and you had no idea what you were doing, even if the promise was foolish, even if keeping the promise causes harm in your life and harm to other people, well, you just have to keep it, right? Lest you bring judgment on yourself. I want to say very clearly that I do not think this passage requires us to be that uncompromising, okay? And I say that for two reasons. The first, okay, we have to remember the teacher is talking about worship in the temple, right? In the temple, people took these formal vows, and those vows were pledges to give things to the service of the temple, And in that context, the teacher says, if you make a vow, you got to keep it. If you promise something to the temple, you got to follow through, lest you bring judgment on yourself. But we don't worship in the temple system anymore, right? 
Jesus has rendered that system obsolete. Praise the Lord. Uh, so any promises that we make today are not, they do not correspond perfectly to vows made in the temple in the old covenant system. Okay, so we have to keep that in mind. And then we also need to remember, over and above everything, that our God is a merciful God, right? Even when our promises have been broken. Peter promised Jesus, I will not deny you. And then Jesus was taken away to be crucified, and what did he do? He denied him three times. And then when Jesus was resurrected and came back, did he disown him? Did he reject him? No. He forgave him, and then he empowered him to go and bring the gospel to the rest of the world, right? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, even the sin of a broken promise to him. So we have to keep that in mind, too. God is merciful. But with those things said, I would be foolish not to emphasize the principle that these verses are clearly teaching, which is we should not lie to God. We should not lie to God. We should do what we, we say we're going to do, right? Now, I think we all know that dishonesty is one of the most harmful things to a relationship, right? And dishonesty is harmful to our relationship with God as well. There's grace for us when we break our promises, but if breaking our promises becomes our habit with God, our relationship with him is going to suffer. I think there's also a principle here for our prayers, too, which is that we should just speak honestly with God. You know, some of us think that when we pray to God, we need to talk in King James English, these and thous, and we need to kind of speechify for him, like we're, we're given a performance. But it's better to just speak to God simply and sincerely, right? Say what you mean. Don't make it all flowery. Just be real. That's what God wants. You can't fake it with him. He can see through it, right? So why try? Just be honest. Finally, I have summarized the last imperative as fear God. Fear God. And I want to be careful here because when some of us hear that word fear, we have an idea of fear that is not the way that we should feel towards God. Some of us think of fear, and the first thing we think of is that which makes you run in the other direction, right? If you're afraid of something, you run away. But a healthy fear of God does not cause us to run away from God. It causes, to, causes us to move toward God. And the analogy that I like to make is if uh, you're a parent and you say to your child sternly, come here now, if your child has a healthy fear of you, he or she will move towards you, right? If they don't have a healthy fear of you, they'll just kind of look at you and then go do their own thing. My family had a dog like that. She never came when she was called. You know, we'd yell, she'd just look at us and be like, well, that looks more interesting over there. I loved her, but she did not have a healthy fear of us, right? But we're supposed to have a healthy fear of God like we would have a healthy fear of a parent. When God says, come here now, if we have a healthy fear, we come. It's the kind of fear that draws us closer. 
Now, the final imperative, you probably noticed, doesn't literally say fear God. It says stand in awe of God. The teacher says, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. So what, is, what does he mean by that? What's he saying there? He's saying, okay, in light of everything that I have said so far in the first four chapters, in light of the incomprehensibility of life and the fact that you cannot fathom or control or predict what, I, what God is doing, in light of the fact that you are all vapor and all your work is like vapor, and everything is passing away, here is the appropriate response. It's not to talk a lot and pretend like you know everything, right? It's not to try and make transactions with God to try and control everything. It's simply this, stand in awe of God. Revere him. Fear him. Recognize that God is God and you are not. Have you ever gone out on a clear night and looked up at the stars and thought about how incredible it is that there are so many of them and they are so far away and how long it's taken the light that's out there to reach your eyes and how comparatively small you are to the vastness of the universe? I know I have. And when I do that, I cannot help but just feel humbled and amazed. And I, I look up and I stand in awe. And the teacher is saying that that is what we should feel before God when we think about life. We should stand humbled and amazed. And we should have fear and reverence for the one who made this amazing, incomprehensible world that we're a part of. You know, I think as long as we're under some illusion that life is orderly and predictable and we can control it, then we feel like we have a reason not to fear God, right? Because we think, well, I don't really need him. I know that if I do X, then I get X, and this is the way the world works. You know, I can achieve my desired outcomes through my efforts. And so if we feel that way when God says, hey, come here now, we feel like we can just keep doing our own thing. But when we realize the truth, okay, when we realize that life is mysterious and unpredictable and uncontrollable and we are all like vapor, then our arrogance can really fall away. Right? And we can realize our need. And that's when we're ready to hear God call and to run toward him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these reminders that we've got to listen. We have to take time to give our attention to you. Lord, we don't want to offer foolish sacrifices. We want to offer the kind of sacrifices that you actually want us to make. And Lord, I pray that as each one of us faces the mysteries of life, the challenges of life, that we would not run away from you, but that we would stand in awe of you, that we would draw near to you, Lord. Help us to fear you in the best sense of the word, Lord. To recognize that without you, Lord, 
uh, we are, we're lost, we're vapor. We need, we need you, God. Help each one of us to know that personally. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.